0: Hello and welcome to the Bible Inspectors podcast, a secular and skeptical approach to finding biblical answers. I am Tyler Owen. and I am joined by my co-host Rick Johnson. Good evening. And I'd also like to introduce our guest for this evening, Alan Deal. Alan, uh, would you like to tell people a little bit about yourself and why you decided to join us this evening?
1: Yeah, thank you, Tyler. Um, yeah, my name is Alan Deal, and um, I, um, I, I actually was a, uh, a pastor um, for five years, associate pastor um, in Nebraska. I was raised in a religious uh, fundamentalist home, and about 10 years ago, at the age of 28, I kind of had a crisis of faith. And um, it really started to question a lot of the things that I had been taught, again from a fundamentalist Christian perspective, um, and it, it sent me down a road where I explored a lot of different things, including the subject that we're going to talk about uh, this evening. Uh, and so um, today I'm involved with uh, a humanist group here locally in Cedar Rapids. Um, I'm also involved with the Interreligious Council of Linn County, uh, where it gives me a great opportunity to um, kind of uh, share what humanism is about, atheism, um, uh, with, um, with the religious world. And so it's quite interesting and it's given me a great opportunity and platform. Um, along with that, I have... Uh, had the opportunity to host what's called the Ethical Perspectives on the News, uh, which is a local TV show here in Cedar Rapids uh, that allows me to discuss a lot of different issues uh, that impact, um, you know, locally and uh, also nationally. And so it's been quite interesting. Uh, A lot of opportunities have come up uh, that I probably never predicted uh, when I first left the ministry 10 years ago. So. Yeah, that's a little bit of what I do. Um, you know, I'm really passionate about uh, kind of bridging the gap between the religious world and the non-religious world because I've had my foot in both and I feel like I have a, a unique perspective uh, and and able to kind of understand and empathize with uh, both viewpoints.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, we really are glad you're able to join us because tonight's topic is uh, a really deep one. A lot of things to talk about. Uh, But first, I'd really like to take a step back and uh, quickly address, again, kind of the purpose of this podcast and uh, elaborate a little bit more on our introduction and our first episode. So uh, I was asked by a few listeners what the true purpose of the podcast was, and really, it's not just about trying to refute uh, biblical viewpoints. It's about uh, embracing the opposing viewpoint and trying to figure out why people believe what they believe. So we want to understand what people believe and why, and then uh, let that help us refine our own beliefs. And it also really helps us avoid making straw man arguments. A uh, straw man argument is when you effectively put words in someone else's mouth. So Uh, For example, when someone argues that Christians don't believe in science or that they believe that all science is inaccurate, well, that's really just not true. There are plenty of Christians who accept uh, certain scientific principles and explanations for the world around us. Indeed, many Christians accept almost all scientific explanations for the universe around us, um, but they just also happen to add a God on top of that, which, you know, that's... uh, not necessarily uh, incompatible. But we want to make sure that we're addressing the actual arguments that Christians use, and we're not uh, mischaracterizing them. So that's really what we're going to try to do tonight with the discussion of our main topic, which is slavery in the Bible. So I'd like to throw it over to Rick for us, and he's going to introduce us to our verse.
2: There are many verses in the Bible that reference the institutions of slavery. Uh, There's also a few different types of slavery outlined in the various laws and traditions of both Judaism and Christianity. Um, We'll start with perhaps one of the most overlooked references to slavery in the Bible, uh, that being in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, as part of the Ten Commandments, which says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This verse opens the discussion of the slave as property, as being owned, uh, much like an ox, a donkey, um, a tool, uh, the food, uh, the furniture in the house. So from that standpoint, Uh, it sets out a very clear standard that slavery is very much about ownership.
0: Yeah, I'm really interested in the way that the servant line in this verse is compared to a lot of these other items listed out here. So you would assume that with ending the verse by saying, or anything that is your neighbor's, that's really just including... All other possessions, but then by listing out these specific things, it's saying like these are all comparable or equivalent other possessions. I mean, is that at all a fair way to interpret the verse? No, absolutely.
1: I think that's that's very clear. I mean, that's just kind of the very clear reading of that passage. I think this really does highlight, um, you know, an, an interesting kind of human phenomena and specifically to myself coming from a fundamentalist background and it's quite interesting when you you come out of that and you really then go back and start reading some of these same verses with kind of a a more uh critical uh set of eyes right it's amazing how your (laughs) your brain starts picking up on these particular words and phrases and and you really wonder what, was I reading the same Bible that I was when I was a yeah. fundamentalist, right? Because it, you really almost literally do not see these words and do not make a connection with what, you know, what their implications are.
0: When you say you, you didn't even recognize or, or maybe overlooked some of the words in these verses, uh, I would assume that means that these weren't really things that you discussed in, in much detail with your congregation. I mean, what do people, Did anyone ever bring up these issues or is it just something that is kind of glossed over? It is
1: very much glossed over. I mean, again, I was 28 years uh, in this as, a um, you know, in school, I've memorized memorized the Ten Commandments uh, um, dozens of times, you know, um, in different contexts, uh, taught it. But I'll be quite honest with you. I don't think I ever addressed this uh, particular passage uh, as far as how when it when it talked about male servant or female servant i think there was just you know really the emphasis in this passage was your neighbor's wife right like mm-hmm. that was what was important here this is really the focus and that is the you know uh, obviously adultery is 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 wicked and uh, but but when it came to these other you know your your donkey your ox your male servant female servant uh you know, I think these were kind of uh, terms that were relegated to a different era um, and not applicable to us today, right? So mm-hmm. none of us have oxes, none of us have donkeys, and none of us have female servants, male servants. Ah, but we do have a wife. So that's what's applicable to us now. Right.
0: I, I think that people do often stop at that first listed item where... Where you're right, they it's interpreted to mean uh, a sense of lust or jealousy um, for uh, the context of adultery with a neighbor's wife. But I would even say, even outside the 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 issue of slavery in this verse, we're also addressing the ownership of your wife. Mm, Indeed, right. I mean, that seems to be a pretty common uh, a pretty common theme throughout the Bible of the the female being the lesser of the two in a relationship or in marriage.
2: That is true. And that comes out of, of course, the curse laid upon woman at the fall. Um, Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, sin came into the the world through Eve. Um, There's another aspect to this verse that... um, I know I preached on once and was mentioned several times in our church. Mm-hmm. This is one of the verses that gives foundation to the concept of private property, which, as you well know, is that one of the underpinnings of the Western economic system, that the ownership of property is absolute and should not be interfered with by anyone else. So, you know, to try to covet what your neighbor owns is to violate his right to own property, um, and as you see, it covers everything from the spouse to the furniture.
0: Right. Yeah, and that's that's another interesting uh, thing you'll see often with apologetics uh, addressing difficult verses like this is that they'll they'll split up two different components and address them separately when the context. At least, as I read it, intends for them to be read as equivalent or uh, treated in the same manner. So, here we're we're treating uh, your neighbor's wife as in, an object of lust or desire, but we're treating their ox and donkey as obviously not an object of lust or desire, but as as property. So, uh, well,
2: and and covet to in fairness, covet covers a desire to possess. Now we yeah. can apply that to. Lust, sexual desire, but you know just simply wanting to take something from someone else is coveting. Um, yeah, it, it, that that whole that whole concept it covers all property.
0: I think what's key for me is the way the verse ends uh, or anything that is your neighbor. So exactly. to me, that really, really stresses that the the context for the word covet is intended to uh, be used in a, an ownership manner where, We're we're discussing things that belong to your neighbors, even their wife and their servants.
1: No, I was just going to say that. And that's an excellent point, Tyler. I mean, this really does, you know, growing up and being in the ministry uh, with uh, the emphasis here in reading this particular commandment was in the context of uh, a lustful, uh, you know, appetite towards your neighbor's wife. But when you truly read it, you know, that that's not the emphasis here. The emphasis is on ownership. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you're not lusting after their ox or their donkey, you know, in a sexual way. Uh, So, yeah, it definitely makes sense that this is referring specifically to
2: um, what your neighbor owns, which includes their wife and, and slaves. And also, you mentioned about some of the verses being broken up and dealt with in different pieces. That is part of why there are so many different translations of the Bible, different viewpoints on how the original language was constructed, in this case, uh, Hebrew. How it was constructed, what was it emphasizing? Where you know, where was, where were the logical breaks in the sentence? There are a variety of viewpoints in that. Plus, you also have the political or theological viewpoint of the committee that's doing the translation. So they may choose to reference one aspect of it, whereas another translation committee might choose to reference a different.
0: I was referring more to um, just ideologically. Splitting of the text to to address different pieces of it, um, but even uh, I think you might have said something to this effect that when this when these uh, books were originally written, they weren't written with verse and you know chapter numbers, mm, and right. so someone went in and and did those separately, and in some cases, even split uh, the meaning of like direct sentences in two with the the numbering of the verses. So, yeah, not only are we dealing with on a conceptual level, but on a organizational level where you're, you're applying numbers to ideas that were never intended to be separate uh, by the original authors. That's correct. And also remember much of this was in the Jewish
2: Midrash, their oral tradition. And then at some point well after these events, allegedly occurred, it was written down. And then several hundred years later, it was parsed into chapters and verses. So you have not only the chapter and verse breakup, but you have the transition. And sometimes it's very rough from oral tradition to written. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, I I want to mention too, that I think that this verse is a really good example, especially from the, the uh, testimony that you guys have provided uh, concerning how you've uh, been taught and have taught this material that this is not necessarily a case of maliciously covering up uh, or attempting to subvert the text um, to abandon its perhaps uh, less than desirable interpretation. I think, like you said, Alan, this is something that most people just not knowingly uh, overlook. So, um, But I think that we, we can get into some other examples from uh, references to slavery throughout the Bible that, that do have a much more direct uh, apologetics response that I, I think in some cases we could make the argument are being less than honest about how to interpret the text. And so I'd love to, to touch on a couple of those right now. Um, on the Bible Inspector's website, uh, we have one question post that has already addressed, uh, the question, does God support the practice of slavery? And granted that's a, maybe an inflammatory title, but I think that, um, you can actually make a pretty strong case, at least based on the text, uh, text of Exodus 21, one through 11. Um, these are verses that are covering the rules of how you are able to own slaves. Um, And this is actually a set of verses that um, I think a lot of Christians just aren't even aware exist, uh, at least in my experience. So, Rick, I don't know if you have those in front of you, if you'd like to run through them real quickly. Sure. Um, Starting in Exodus chapter 21,
2: uh, verses 1 through 11. Now, these are the rules that you will set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and she shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money.
0: Yeah, so these verses, uh, when I first encountered them, were fairly Um, eye-opening. It was really distressing to me as a young Christian to try to come to some sort of compromise in my mind of why why God would allow a verse like this, uh, a set of verses like this to be a part of his divine plan, his His word to his people. Um, I don't know of any instance where I was ever taught of these uh, in, in any kind of religious education setting. Um, is that again, are these verses that uh, either of you dealt with during your teaching or Was it, again, just a case of not being a a priority or something that was overlooked? Uh, Alan, what what was your experience?
1: You know, it's very similar to with the, you know, the last passage we looked at. I mean, these were certainly part of our required reading. You know, we tried to read through the Bible the entire year, but certainly these were more of the, uh, shall we say, boring passages of Scripture. And certainly ones that didn't apply to us today, Um, you know, they did apply at the time. Uh, This was, uh, you know, God recognizing, I mean, and this is about as far as it went uh, apologetically. Uh, You know, the tradition I was raised with was not super strong on apologetics. But the furthest we went was basically, you know, God recognized that the institution of slavery was, you know, present on earth. Uh, You know, this was a result of the fall of, of man in the garden. This is just another repercussion of that. Uh, And so God was kind of coming in here and saying, "Okay, how can we deal with um, this institution in, um, you know, in a fair way? Let's set up some guidelines to make sure that this is, you know, done in an ethical way. Right. So Mm -hmm. that was and you hear that a lot, even from modern apologists, right, that this was God just understanding that this was an institution that couldn't just be dismantled overnight because so many, you know, it was such an intricate part of everybody's life and, and civilization, right? So he, God, was uh, b- being merciful and in his omniscience was, you know, in a sense, respecting the institution, respecting the decisions, these free will, uh, decisions of his creation, but, but guiding them, providing guidance to them. And, you know, that's, that's how I, you know, kind of interpreted or understood, I should say, these, these passages of scripture.
0: Yeah, that sounds, I mean, it sounds very similar to the answers that I was, uh, presented with when I was looking for responses to these verses. Rick was, uh, was your experience similar? Very similar.
2: This was grouped right there with Levitical law that these were set up as a framework to accommodate for a fallen man until such time as Jesus came and redeemed man and provided a path to salvation. Um, this is a framework that was put in there to give guidance and direction. It was not the end product. So therefore, yes, it's faulty, uh, but it was, the, it was given by God for a faulty person, a faulty people, for faulty mankind.
0: Yeah, let me just quickly read a response provided by the website Got Questions, which is a, a really popular apologetics website. Uh, they say that the Bible does not specifically condemn the practice of slavery. It gives instructions on how slaves should be treated, but does not outlaw slavery altogether. The slavery in the Bible, uh, described in the Bible could more accurately be described as indentured servitude where uh, another crucial point is that the purpose of the Bible is to point the way to salvation and not necessarily reform society. So what are your guys' thoughts on that, Alan?
1: Well, I mean, I think, you know, again, this is a a situation in which, you know, Christians have uh, gone back and and kind of uh, reclaimed the, the Jewish scriptures for themselves, and in so doing, have gone back and looked at some of more of these difficult passages and reinterpreted them to fit a a christian narrative right so you can pretty much look at anything and say you know this is all about symbolizing uh um uh, yeah, a foreshadowing, if you will, or s- providing symbolism of what is to come, right? So, you, you kind of a, a classic in that is, or a classic example is just um, the idea of a theophany, right? This this pre New Testament appearing of Christ, right? Where they've they've gone back into the no- Old Testament and looked at different characters that show up that appear to be uh, mysterious and say, well, this is you know this is Christ appearing. In the Old Testament, right? That yeah. is a that is a great example of going back and and essentially uh, reinterpreting, uh, provide you know superimposing a Christian narrative on what was exclusively a Jewish text. So I don't think it's fair to to say that you know these all these passages can simply be um, you know written off as simply God explaining in a symbolic nature the the salvation of man.
0: Yeah, I I find it difficult to accept that uh, especially many of these Old Testament verses and texts are not intended to reform society. Like, Why would there have been an inclusion of direct rules and laws about how to behave in society if the purpose was not to, in some effect, reform society? Uh, You even mentioned how uh, many Christians will claim that these were an attempt to uh, improve this situation that existed at the time, that these rules were actually more lenient than what existed before uh, and to to codify these uh, practices in a way that is a little more uh, empathetic to the slave. But isn't that a, effectively a reform of their society? I, I guess I just don't I don't see how we could argue that um if God were the author of these texts, including those of the Old Testament that, we shouldn't take them at their face value and, and say that this is what he intended for his people. Um, since there's no, as admitted by the, this got questions post that the practice of slavery is not specifically condemned anywhere. So where, I guess, where are, where does the condemnation of slavery come from, from a Christian perspective uh, when the only references are attempts to set slavery in a codified system?
2: Well, one of the things that a number of evangelical apologists have set forth, and quite honestly, it goes back into the dispensationalist uh, interpretation of the Bible. Um, The purpose of, from a Christian standpoint now, the purpose of this period uh, of narrative is to illustrate to mankind that mankind cannot live properly on their own rules that they cannot save themselves, so to speak. So rather than saying God is not condemning slavery, what they would say is God is illustrating that without the salvation that he is going to offer, this is the best mankind can hope for. Um, At that point, you come to the moment where that salvation is offered through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then in the New Testament, you sense a different flavor to it. And yet, even in the New Testament, there's no direct condemnation of uh, slavery in the New Testament. So in my mind, that kind of undermines the argument that, oh, well, the, the whole purpose of slavery in the Old Testament is to teach man that he can't live properly without salvation from God. I don't necessarily accept that.
0: Yeah, and I feel like there are certainly plenty of opportunities throughout the Bible uh, for there to be a direct condemnation of slavery, especially when we just a minute ago were discussing the Ten Commandments and how even within a list of things that are directly condemned, we don't get a condemnation of slavery. In fact, it seems to uh, support it in the text that is often glossed over. So uh, I don't, I, I really have a lot of difficulty swallowing the idea that this is um, a, a half measure for the people of the time uh, when we have a God who most modern Christians would say is absolutely against the concept of slavery in modern day. So uh, I don't see how. Uh, we wouldn't be able to expect a God who does not agree with it in modern times would somehow support it then, uh, or have some kind of leniency, I guess. And the real problem here that I've
1: uh, always thought about, or at least over the last, you know, after coming out of, of my religious tradition, is 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 basically this. I mean, regardless of the argument you may have, Um, you know, for why slavery is either passively or actively endorsed in the Old Testament and New Testament, or whether you feel that slavery was some kind of watered down, you know, indentured servitude, you know, almost an employee and employer relationship. I mean, you hear people go as far as to say that, right? It really wasn't Mm -hmm. slavery as we think of it. Well, of course, that and that seems to be the most ubiquitous argument, right? Is it's that slavery that, as referred to in the Bible, is really just a very, uh, you know, a watered down version. But they do that contrasting it with what we consider to be, a, a, you know, slavery of the worst kind, right? So the kind that we've thought of or we've been exposed to in our history books. So mm-hmm. you really then do have to ask the question, and here's here, here it is, and that is, if God is omniscient and, and omnipotent and all powerful, and as portrayed in the in the in the New Testament Old Testament scriptures, why would he uh, put these passages in there, knowing that there would be more aggressive and vile forms of slavery that would emerge on the earth, and that these passages would be used to justify that? I mean, to me, that is yeah. the. That is the straw that breaks the camel's back, that if this was done by an all-loving God that was also aware of what the implications of including these verses in here or not including verses that condemn it, you know, I, I
2: just don't see how you can reconcile it. And all, and that plays out in, our, in the 20 or 30 years before the beginning of the Civil War when you see People like um, Reverend Dr. Richard Furman making a very articulate and very lengthy argument in support of slavery that essentially is pinned on the fact that it's not condemned in either the Old or New Testament. The lack of condemnation is viewed as an authorization to go ahead with it. And the ramifications of that is immense.
0: I think even in the case of the types of cruel, uh, more modern forms of slavery that uh, most people think of, uh, I even think that there are plenty of cases throughout the Bible where you could point to and say that this is a, a direct uh, reference to that form of slavery. There, as you mentioned, Alan, that there are there are plenty of instances where it's describing a a transactional form of slavery between uh, someone who is in extreme debt and someone who is willing to alleviate that debt in exchange for labor. But there's a difference between Hebrew slaves and non-Hebrew slaves. Um, And many of these laws are applicable primarily to Hebrew slaves with the indentured servitude, essentially. Whereas non-Hebrew slaves, it was almost directly the types of more cruel... Um, ownership that we see, uh, for example, in the early United States.
2: And on the Bible inspector page that I read from earlier, uh, there's a mention of Exodus chapter 21, verses 20 through 21. When a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Yeah. I mean, that that is a very foundational statement of the status of slaves in that era and i see no differentiation in that particular passage between hebrew and non-hebrew slaves
0: i i think that there it can be difficult sometimes to parse out the the differences in especially in quoted law throughout the bible it's one of the really complex things that a lot of apologists like to focus in on actually because They'll um, they'll point to things that are law, things that are just rules, things that are just suggestions, things that are just uh, interpretive uh, recommendations. and they'll they'll give their various arguments for why each thing fits into such and such category. But um, just with a direct reading of the text, it has enabled exactly the type of interpretation that you're discussing, Rick, where modern, Christians, at least relatively modern, at the time of the Civil War and just before, were using these verses as support for uh, extreme, uh, cruel slavery. And so, uh, like you said before about how how could a God allow uh, text like that to be in his message to his people, knowing that something like that would be done, um, It's it's certainly... Perplexing. I don't know if it's necessarily disqualifying for the types of interpretations uh, that would say that these treatment of human beings is is not biblical, but um, it's just it seems illogical.
2: If I if I can read a, just a brief passage from uh, Richard Furman's exposition uh, that was sent to the governor of South Carolina in 1822. This was after a slave insurrection. The Carolina Baptist Convention asked Dr. Furman to put together a justification for this the. Uh, institution of slavery and uh, outlining its moral and biblical justification. And the one paragraph uh, strikes right to the heart of this. It goes, had the holding of slaves been a moral evil, it cannot be supposed that the inspired apostles who feared not the faces of men and were ready to lay down their lives in the cause of their God would have tolerated it for a moment in the Christian church. If they had done so on a principle of accommodation in cases where the masters remained heathen to avoid offenses and civil commotion, yet surely where both master and servant were Christian, as is the case before us, they would have enforced the law of Christ and required that the master should liberate his slave in the first instance. But instead of this, they let the relationship remain untouched as being lawful and right and insist upon the relative duties. In proving this subject justifiable by Christian's authority, its morality is also proved for the divine law never sanctions immoral actions. Yeah. So the, 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 the lack of any clear and distinct condemnation of slavery was... Given as justification for the institution of slavery as we knew it in the early 1800s in the South, and the continued uh, uh, use of it in spite of these uprisings that they were writing against.
1: Yeah, yeah, and kind of, in kind of building off of that, uh, Ricky, there's a uh, example here that I'm reading off of the IronChariots.org, which is a great resource um, that people can check out that goes into a lot of these more difficult. Uh, questions that we're we're discussing here. And there is uh, a quote in here from the Reverend Thomas Stringfellow. He's a Baptist minister from Culpeper County in Virginia um, from the year 1856. So, you know, five years before the American Civil War, quote, Job himself was a great slaveholder and like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, won no small portion of his claims to character with God and men. From the manner in which he discharged his duty to his slaves it is certain that god interposed to give joseph the power in egypt which he used to create a state or condition among the egyptians which substantially agrees with patriarchal and modern slavery so there's a just unquote there's a justification for for modern slavery and quote if therefore doing to others as we as we would, they should do to us, means precisely what loving our neighbor as ourself means, then Jesus has added no new moral principle of, above those in the law of Moses to prohibit slavery, for in his law is found this principle, and slavery also. So, I mean, there you have it. I mean, it's right there, and I'm sure there's countless examples of, and it, you didn't have to look very far, right, in the Bible. Uh, to to find justification. Yeah, I
0: I find it actually highly ironic that we are presented with a, a characterization of a god who is willing to enact miracles to free his own people from slavery uh, and and enforce this concept that his people should not be subjected to this injustice. And yet we have In the same books of the Bible, we are presented with how his people that he has saved from slavery should then uh, surround uh, rules for owning their own slaves, uh, both from within their own people and outside their own people. And so the idea that this God would only want to uh, lay the seeds for slavery to be abolished far in the future... Versus a God who would be willing to enact miracles to uh, enforce the concept that slavery is immoral, I find it such a uh, such a disingenuous uh, argument to make that that God just simply would not be willing to uh, enforce through His power uh, a a biblical view that slavery is immoral. Right, and, and it's really a testament to
1: man making god in their own image Mm -hmm. right i mean that's really what it boils down to uh you you know obviously if god was unchanging and if he was all loving and he was the uh, you know he was the uh, author of of right and wrong that you would um you know you would see a consistent message uh throughout scripture when it came to all kinds of issues but of course if you if you study it out, you, you really don't get to see a consistent message when it comes to slavery, when it comes to a lot of different, uh, you know, um, ethical uh, principles within the Bible. And, and that that is uh, also a result of the fact that, you know, the Bible is a compilation of many, many books, right? Sixty six separate books, multiple authors. In many cases, we don't know. Um, who the authors were, but we can certainly see that they had different views. They lived in different ages. Uh, They were susceptible to to different societal influences. Um, And and so it definitely does not point to the idea of there being a divine author that inspired every one of the books and provided a consistent message to his people. That's just not what you see. But it does when you read scripture, but it certainly does. Um, but what you do see is is the fact that you you just have a very disjointed uh, view of nearly
2: everything yeah. <laughs> that you can think of when it comes to how we should conduct ourselves. Um, and when you add to when you add to that, the the human nature of confirmation bias on top of the prior politicization of the formation of the canon, uh, you, you can literally make the Bible say anything you want it to. And with the Bible as your sword, um, go to war
1: over it. Ironically, that is one of the reasons the Bible has has thrived, because it can be all things to all people in, in many ways, right? I mean, that's why we have thousands of different you know, Christian denominations, for instance, and each one of them feels The Bible uh, supports their their view of the world. Yeah. Um, Whereas if the Bible was too uniform and too consistent and, uh, you know, there wasn't much deviation or uh, ambiguity uh, in the passages, I think you would actually. that that would have, um, not has not have created as much of a fertile environment for Christianity to thrive.
0: Yeah. If you can say anything about the consistency of these passages relating to slavery, it's that they seem to be consistently, uh, written by men who lived in a social structure that was accepting of the concept of slavery. There doesn't really seem to be, uh, any need to appeal to um, a god laying the seed for its abolishment further down the road, um, you can you can see how the men who wrote these texts were very much in support of these being codified and and being dispersed amongst their people for how to behave um, and not how to uh, abolish or condemn these as immoral. And then later on,
2: you, you that's even proven later on when you have the likes of Charles Spurgeon, John Wesley, uh, Charles Finney, William Wilberforce, who use with the same vehement attitude, the same scriptures to preach, to overthrow slavery. The abolitionist movement, it's, it is quite right. It had its roots in Christianity, yeah. but so did slavery and the two the two houses could not make reconciliation with each other. That's why you had the Southern Baptist Convention split off. Um, the arguments could be easily made on both sides using the same text.
0: And I think you'd be hard-pressed to find any social movement uh, from the last several hundred years that did not have its roots in Christianity, simply by the fact that l- almost literally everyone was Christian. And so exactly you, you you can claim that Christianity was responsible for uh, the abolitionist movement but in reality all you can really say is that those in uh, in support of abolishment were Christian
1: and, and similar to the the gay rights movement and uh you know in the, in the last 20 30 years you know you have this um you, you see it. We see it played out in real time, right? Where th- people, institutions are changing not only their view of, let's say, you know, homosexuality, and they're going back and reinterpreting these scriptures. Uh, you apologists, are, as I listen to them, almost in real time, are hedging in a lot of their prior positions on a lot of this. And I can see, and I, I can imagine that was playing out uh, 150, 200 years ago when it came to this idea of slavery, and uh it, it, but 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 it certainly isn't done in a vacuum right that the, the the reason christians change their view of anything but in this case slavery is not because they received a divine revelation it's not because they've gone back to the bible and discovered it in newer or you know uncovered what they previously didn't see you know no it's it's a confluence of many different factors right it's the rise for instance with slavery of of technology, it's the um, you know it, it's the result of the enlight- you know the values of the Enlightenment and how that spread across the Western world. Uh, it was the and in, in the expansion of rights to more and more people that this had you know uh, tremendous downward pressure upon the Christian religious community to go back and figure out okay is there a way to align scripture with the direction the world is heading. Right. And that that's that's what happens. But but it doesn't happen in one year or two years. In some cases, it takes you know, several generations. So people don't see it happening in their life. Right. They just think that, no, look, I'm looking at the Bible and the Bible says this or God has told me this thing, uh, you know, kind of unconscious or unaware of these other, you know, kind of these zeitgeists of the age you know, that, that's
2: changing and influencing them. Well, you also have the realities of the economics of the time. The South had a tremendous advantage when it came to labor. Uh-huh. They had free labor. The North, for the most part, didn't have that. The industri- more industrialized North had labor costs that the South did not have, and that was one of the factors that led to the uh, uh, conflict over slavery. And, you know, even the, Dr. Richard Furman, who wrote that exposition in support of slavery, was an abolitionist until he, his wife inherited slaves from her family. And then he had an epiphany. Right. Yeah.
1: No, I mean, you, constantly. It's just, it's, we, I did it as a Christian. Uh, people, I see people do it all the time. You, you'd simply take the beliefs that you have or the beliefs that your community has, you know, your religious community um, and you superimpose them back onto the Bible and you use the, the, the confirmation bias to do that. And again, as I stated earlier, uh, the real strength of the Bible is it gives you the ability to do that because it has conflicting verses. So you can be an abolitionist, you, you know, you can be pro-slavery and find justification for both for both of those contradictory positions.
0: Yeah, it's it's really fascinating to get in discussions with Christians and even uh, apologists who will resort to the discussion of objective morality, right? So oftentimes with something as extreme as slavery, when they can't find a, a direct reference to go off of in the Bible itself, um, where it would condemn this practice, they'll resort to the, this idea that God has written it on our hearts, right? So the things that we just know to be evil or sinful, uh, God has provided to us the tools to discern those things. And and from where I'm standing, that sounds a whole lot like secular humanist uh, morality, secular morality. It, it's it's something that we are reasoning from our surroundings. We're We're discovering uh, ways to to acknowledge and uh, more closely uh, perceive harm and benefit through our actions. And I think that's the re- because there was no direct condemnation in the Bible, it's what allowed these practices to proliferate for so long. Um, and it took that long for us to recognize the true harms just through our own observations of what we see around us and, and the way we interact as a society. And so when when you take those personal observations, those personal uh, revelations of a sort, and uh, you then search for justification uh, for why this is the way it should be in in abolishing slavery, for example, that's when you go to the Bible and try to find... Uh, anything you can that would support the idea that this is how God intended it all along. Um, so it's it's certainly something that I've struggled with uh, after uh, losing my faith. Is where where do we get right and wrong? Um, but I think, funnily enough, I think a lot of Christians have it right. It's it's a part of who we are as humans to recognize the evils or wrongs that we uh, can enact on each other. And so I don't think you need to appeal to an objective moral uh, center or uh, divine author of morality in order to come to those conclusions.
1: Right. And I, interestingly enough, um, as I mentioned in my opening statement, I help host what's called the Ethical Perspectives in the News. And we actually had um, an episode called, Can You Be Good Without God? And I know we're Getting a little off of the subject of slavery, but I think it's very applicable, right? Because it does get back to this idea of what is right and wrong and how do we determine right. it? So one of the questions was, you know, how do we determine what is right and wrong? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it sounds like a very simple question, but it's actually a very difficult one for most people to answer. Uh, and we had a panelist on by the name of Peter, Dr. Peter Yagihainen, and he is a professor of religious studies at Kirkwood Community College here in, in the Cedar Rapids area. And he had a, just a very very succinct answer to that question. I, you know, said something very similar, but he really summed it up well when he said, "Well, I can tell you where we get right and wrong from, or who determines it. Humans do." And 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 it's it, it's really as simple as that, right? That you human humans uh, come up with opinions of what they think are right and wrong, uh, right or wrong. They they uh, convince others. They uh, coalesce into societies that have some of the same opinions. Um, They use different techniques to convince others. And when enough people believe it, it becomes, you know, the law of the land or kind of codified as, you know, right or wrong. But at the end of the day, it's just a result of humans interacting with the world. But getting back to your point really quick here, Tyler, when you had mentioned earlier about how Christians feel that God uh, spoke to them or God is speaking to them in their hearts or God writes what is right and wrong in their hearts, and that is kind of very similar to secular humanism. But the only difference there really, and this is, um, uh, is, is that if there was a God, again, that's omniscient, omnipotent, uh, that is the author of right and wrong, and he's unchanging, you would find that what he writes on a person's heart or what he tells an individual what is right and wrong should be consistent without any deviation across any person, right? right? Uh, Unless he's purposely deceiving the person, which would fly in the face of Mm omnibenevolence. Whereas, uh, and of course you don't see that, right? I mean, you get, uh, you can go into a a, a church and ask, you know, 50 people about a particular ethical, you know, ask them an ethical question, you're going to get a variety of different responses, you know, let alone going to (laughs) different religions and so on and so forth. And but, but with secular humanism, you know, there is this idea that we can be wrong uh, and that we often are wrong and that we have to not necessarily go off of our intuitions or our gut feeling or what we think, you know, or what somebody told us is right or wrong. But we have to continue to investigate it and look at the consequences of our actions, look at the implications of our actions, uh, you know, gathering data, so on and so forth to, to kind of more refine what we consider to be, you know, right or wrong.
0: Yeah, I, I think the, the biggest thing for me is just just looking at the massive timescale on which this one moral issue has unraveled. Um, if like you said, if this were if this were a moral issue written on hearts by God, I I don't see why it would have taken people so long to recognize that reality that God has instilled in them. Uh it's it's it strains credulity. I think that you know the whole concept that we're we're approaching to
2: or the whole answer that we're reaching here is that the Bible is again subjected to human interpretation. And that it's not God giving us a perfect Bible that gives us all the answers. It is the people of that era writing stories and us interpreting them in our particular era. And trying to apply them using our own preconceived notions, biases, and, you know, in many cases, incomplete understanding of the issue and moving forward upon that and calling it the word of God. Yeah. Right.
1: And and, uh, one other thing that, you know, you do hear from Christian apologists when it comes to how to kind of interpret these more difficult passages around the idea of slavery, which is you know, kind of the first go-to for a lot of people that are maybe critical of the Bible is well, it endorses slavery. You know, it, it, it's this idea that, and it goes to a, a lot of other difficult passages, but, you know, God is omniscient. He knows the end of all things. And if he endorsed slavery or if he didn't condemn it, that there's a good reason for him to do that. Why? Because he is a perfectly good God. Therefore, everything that he says and does ultimately is for the good. So it's irrelevant whether or not we as human beings can figure out, you know, why God didn't condemn it and why he has passages like, you know, Exodus 21, 7, that says, if a man sells his daughter as a servant, <laughs> you know, let that sink in. Um You know, if if we can't in our small, finite brains figure that out, well, oh, well, you know, it's beyond our capacity because maybe of our fallen nature or because of our limited capabilities. But what we can and this is, again, a Christian apologist speaking, we can rely upon the fact that we serve a God that is all loving, that is all powerful. And therefore, there is a ultimate good reason for all of this, you know, and so that that's kind of the, that, that final argument they'll fall back on that, if, you know, all else fails because it's a pretty, it's a fairly difficult argument to completely refute. And it certainly is um, convincing for a lot of people and, 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 and it provides them kind of
0: shelter, um, you know, when they're exposed to these, these difficult passages. The Bible was supposed to have answers, but we still have some questions. And so until next time, Rick, is there anything you'd like to plug?
2: I thing I'd mention is if you want to, you can follow me on Twitter at rjohnson64. And I also have a blog. Uh, it's at rjohnson.us called uh, Tugging on Superman's Cape. We address a variety of issues, uh, some of which will fall under the scope of
0: this uh, podcast. Great. And Alan, uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, do you have any place where we can find you?
1: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Deal2 and uh, also on on Facebook. Um, And also, I'd love, as far as a plug, if you could uh, follow Ethical Perspectives on the News. Uh, We are on Facebook and uh, YouTube, uh, but uh, we'd love for you to be able to check out a lot of our videos where we do cover a variety of very interesting uh, subjects, both religious, non-religious, uh, but we, um, I, I think
0: you'll find those quite interesting. Awesome. I'm sure we will try to have you on the podcast again sometime soon. And you can find me on Twitter at Tyler Owen. For more Bible questions, debates, and articles, make sure to visit our website, bibleinspectors.com. There you will also find links to our Facebook and Twitter accounts to get the latest updates. You can submit your own comments or questions to bibleinspectors at gmail.com. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes or Google Play as well, and please tell a friend about the show. And now, Rick, if you have a quote for us to sign off today.
2: That I do. Uh, We will go to the Greek philosopher Epicurus. Uh, He lived roughly 300 years before the Common Era, and uh, he wrestled with questions similar to what we wrestled with tonight and I think Alan's uh, commentary prompted this quote to my mind, so I'll share it with people. Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why do we call him God?